Is it better to ask for shoes <laughs> or beg for flip flops? User error 85. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back. And we've got a whole bunch of hashtag ask error questions for you. And remember, you can submit them on Twitter using that hashtag or error.show slash contact or in the Jupiter Broadcasting Telegram group, which is jupiterbroadcasting.com slash telegram. But before we actually get started, I thought I'd let you plug your crowdfunder, Dan. Yeah, so uh, if you don't already know about it, we're a crowdfunding app center for everyone, which is um, a little campaign where we want to bring more uh, indie open source apps to more Linux distributions, and we want to bring our pay-what-you-want model to. So if you want to find out more about that, uh, you can head over to elementary.io and click the little pink banner at the top of the screen. Well, you've already been funded 100% plus, so nobody actually do that. But... Even though we've already been funded 100%, anything over that is stuff we're going to be able to use to hire contractors and continue to make App Center and Elementary OS better. You're not going to spend it on hookers and blow? No, no. We're going to use it on, on contractors. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what they call them. You're not going to spend it on fancy coffee and uh, scales that can tell you how much fat you've got uh, in your feet or whatever. I do that on my own time. <laughs> <laughs> fat feet. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, moving on. Let's do the first question then. Does your car have a name? No. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's going to be a no for me, dog. Really? None of you named your cars? Does that mean that you have named your car? Yes, my car does have a name. Is it named car? (laughs) Close. Is it Kit? (laughs) No, it's called Starty. Starty. Yes, because there was a period when the alternator was on the fritz and it would not start sometimes. And so after going through some batteries and getting a new alternator, uh, we kind of jokingly nicknamed it Starty so that, uh, well, I suppose it was a a hopelessly optimistic name for it. And uh, so, yeah, it's called Starty. And now that's what we just refer to it as. started ironically and then just became just a thing. It's not short for Starty McStartface, is it? No, no. It's it's Starty with an I, because that's how Germans do it rather than a Y. Yeah, we just call my car the new car, because we both have silver Honda Civics, and mine is just a few years newer. I'm surprised you don't have a Prius. No. (laughs) Well, it's not unreasonable to assume that you would have one. It's such an ugly car. I only ever get in them when they're Ubers. I, I don't think anyone I know owns one. Yeah, whenever I'm driving around and I see a Prius, it's like, oh, that's an Uber. Yeah. Right, he's going to drive like an idiot then. My next car, if microservices haven't taken over and eliminated the need for purchasing cars, will probably be a Tesla Model 3. Wow, that's quite a leap from, please pay for me to fly to another city so that I can develop something to, I want the most expensive electric car there is. It is not the most expensive electric car. What is the most expensive electric car there is? My my personal finances and, and the company finances are very, very different. <laughs> that money's just resting in your account. <laughs> no, the, um, the Model 3 is the cheap Tesla, isn't it? And the Model S is the really fancy one. Yeah, the Model 3 is the, the entry-level one. And I, I think I could save for a car before mine kaputs. It's still got another, you know, five or ten years in it, so... I don't like buying brand new cars. I have a a real objection to the amount of tax 
that you pay on it and the fact that it drops in value the second you drive it off the forecourt. I would way rather reduce, reuse, recycle and use a car that's already had most of the life kicked out of it. And then I'll eke a few more years out of it and then throw it away when it's, you know, when it's done. I can't believe the lack of imagination of you two not naming your cars though. So my wife used to name her cars. Um, I think her first car was a Renault, Renault 5 soft top, and she called it Ronnie Renault. <laughs> and she had a Renault Clio after that, and that was called Cleopatra. <laughs> but she's not particularly inventive when it comes to car names. Yeah, it's like I think my mum had a Golf GTI, and that was called Gritty. <laughs> but in our house, my car is known as your car, and her car is known as my car. What do the kids call it? Dad's car and mum's car? Um, no, I don't think they do. No, they go, your, it's, it's your car or that car. Uh, as we step out of the house and, you know, I have a set of, I, so I've talked about these stupid games I play with Sophie. Yeah. You know, racing to the car. So what I'll sometimes do is take the wrong keys, both sets of keys in my hands so that Sophie looks at the keys I've got in my hand and thinks, aha, he's going in mum's car. And then she'll start running to mum's car in order to get in it and get a seatbelt on before me. But then I'll trick her and I'll throw the keys on the floor in the house, shut the door and then run to my car and get in my car and I'll be first. <laughs> I think you should name them. I think that it would just make life easier. Well, they have got names. They're called my car and your car. That's their names. Right. So you lied then. They do have a name. Okay. I, I don't think I've ever been attached to a car enough to consider naming it. That just seems odd to me. It is. Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't even, I don't know if I've named any inanimate object that I've ever owned. It seems like a foreign practice to me. Oh, well, all my guitars have names. My guitar is called the Epiphone. Oh, well, the one that I'm looking at right now is called Redzo. And then uh, <laughs> I had one that I'm trying to sell that my wife called Greenfucker. <laughs> uh, and they're, they're generally quite descriptive names. Hang on. Surely this is just. I don't know what its actual name is, so I'm going to make up a name. Just like, you know, when I was a kid at college and we'd make up names for people, you know, Big Nose, Baldy, and, you know, stuff like that. It's just when you don't know the name, you make up a name. But I know the names of my cars, and yet I still choose not to make up extra names for my cars. Well, I think you're just boring. Maybe. But I'm not wasting brain cells thinking up names for cars, am I? Maybe I'll give my car a name and then purposely not use it to assert dominance. <laughs> I think I'll give mine a name and it will be Audi A6. There you go. That's going to be its name from now on. How do I convince my employer to adopt open source software? This was someone who works in InfoSec specifically, uh, but I've kind of made it more general. Most organizations tend not to use much open source software, at least on the kind of client side. So is it even possible to convince your employer to adopt open source software? I think the approach is wrong. I think you don't convince your employer to use open source software. You convince your employer to use the best tool for the job. And sometimes that happens to be uh, open source and sometimes it isn't. And I don't think you should put preconditions on the software. I mean, some people will obviously have their philosophical objection to proprietary software and they would want to get it out of here. But I think 
it should just be part of the evaluation process, just like price and availability and support, maintenance and security updates and all the kind of things that you think about when you're evaluating a piece of software. License is just one of those factors. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I have super relevant experience with this, but I feel like when I was working for someone else and there was a chance to um, choose what software was being used, it was just because my employer didn't really care what was used to get the job done. It was just like, this is your job and do it. And I get to use whatever tools that does the end result. So yeah, I don't really know any applicable answer for something where they, they want a specific prescribed piece of software used. It's difficult because I can, I can certainly see occasions where my employer has not mandated the use of, of proprietary software, but um, not mandated the use of open source software. So an employee who's working in design might use uh, professional proprietary software on an Apple Mac and people in the community would be outraged that these people weren't using the GIMP and Krita and Inkscape and so on to do their job. But these are professional people who are experienced in using those tools and the number of conversations that go on online about, oh, it's terrible that they're using proprietary software, but they're using proprietary software to make better open source software and make better free software and make more beautiful open source software and free software. So I think that gets a pass given that they are good with those tools. So again, I still think it's down to what's the right tool for the job. And if you hire someone who's an excellent graphic designer and they are experienced with a proprietary tool, then let them use the proprietary tool to make your free software better. But Dan, you kind of force people to use Slack, don't you? I was just thinking about that, actually. And and I was thinking about like, okay, like shoe on the other foot, like what what does somebody need to do to um, convince me to tell everybody to get off Slack? And I, I think that's that's kind of the thing is that it is like the tool for the job right now. We've tested a bunch of other stuff and it's just not as good. But Slack isn't really that great either. Yeah, Mattermost is pretty good in my experience and pretty easy to install and works mostly the same. I haven't had that experience with Mattermost at all. So I've used all of them. Matrix, Mattermost, uh, Rocket Chat, um, IRC, obviously, all of them. And the the key selling point that slack has is that it has these software integrations with other tools and so it's very easy to point and click and invoke a bot that sits in your channel and tells you when a build fails if that's important to you or highlights when a news article comes up if that's important to you and i appreciate it's possible to code a bot on irc in python and there are libraries that can do this but for an organization that's focused on something other than writing bots, you want to, you know, your team to be able to interact well and not waste your time creating bots when you can just point and click and enable a bot in Slack that tells you when, um, people are on holiday or tells you when, uh, there's travel disruption or whatever the bot is, you know, Slack has that bit really nailed well. And so. I can see why a lot of people prefer to use Slack over something like IRC. And unfortunately, it's a hosted proprietary platform. But I can totally see why people use it. 
And you know where I use Slack like 90% of the time is from my phone. I, I use Slack on the desktop sometimes, but it's like Slack is always on my phone because wherever I am, if I'm like on the clock or not, whatever, you know, it Slack's there and it's my access to the team. And so if somebody can build a product that's not like we cloned Slack and it's open source, but build a product that's like, this is how I access and manage my team and stay apprised of the state of things that the team cares about. Like that's how you convince someone to replace Slack is is build a product that's better at those things, not trying to make something that looks and acts exactly like Slack, but being behind on like all the features that matter. Mm. I think things like um, Matrix are getting there, but they're still quite technical. Um, their Riot client is okay. Um, it's very much like Slack. You know, you've got a bunch of channels and there are ne- uh, multiple servers you can connect to. So there's lots of disparate communities you could be part of, or you could just be in one channel on one network if that's, that's what you want. Um, so there are certainly improvements being made. I think Slack is falling behind a little. There's not a lot of innovation I've seen in Slack in the last two years that I've used it. It's pretty much been exactly the same. They've made the desktop client a bit lighter, but I've not seen anything in Slack that would make me say this is improving faster than the free software alternatives. Unlike um Mac OS and Windows, where they have new features being developed all the time and new APIs and new tools that are being created. And it's very difficult for the Linux desktop to keep up with those armies of developers working on those operating systems. With Slack, it I think they're backing off a little bit and they're not they're not innovating as much. And so that's giving these free software alternatives a chance to catch up. So while none of them are necessarily better than Slack in terms of features, I think a lot of them are catching up in terms of functionality. Is it better to ask permission or beg forgiveness? Morally or practically? Practically. It depends on the circumstance. I've certainly seen plenty of occasions where people have done something and said, oh, well, we'll just, we'll just crack on and do it. And then if anything goes wrong, well, you know, we'll ask for forgiveness and I'm sure everything will be all right. Knowing that we're bending the rules a little bit or going against someone's expectations or going against someone's initial guidance for sure. And I've seen that happen in everywhere I've worked ever. So I think it's just one of those things that you, it's a case by case basis and you've got to decide if you can live with the, uh, the consequences of you having to ask for forgiveness for doing this, this step or misstep. I think. I think that's exactly what it is, is like evaluating the consequences. Because like if I'm doing a grocery run and at the grocery, they are, low on something or it's um, not very good quality uh, or, you know, does it always make sense to go, okay, well, now that I'm at the grocery, I have to stop and call and find out like, okay, you know, they don't have your yogurt. Um, what would you like to do instead? Or is it something where it's of little consequence for me to use a different brand or say, well, I know we have enough at home that we don't have to get that this week. We can get it next week or you know, if it's something that's like low risk like that, it's a lot easier to be like, ah, oh, sorry, I couldn't get that this time, you know, and but if it's something where it has some kind of massive consequence, then I feel like, yeah, you need to you need to ask. Yeah. And I think in those personal relationships, you have to make a 
decision each time on whether it's appropriate for you to take that action or not. I have a friend whose partner is um, suffers terribly with OCD and has very strict regimes for certain things, including washing clothes. Underwear must never be washed with other items of clothing and not only washed, but dried with other items of clothing. So when they're hanging clothes on radiators or on a, a clothes hanger, the non-underwear clothes, the outer garments, have to go on a completely different radiator or a completely different clothes hanger from the underwear because the underwear must not touch the other clothes. And on one occasion, my friend washed everything together because his partner wasn't in, washed everything together, hung it all up, and then once it was all dry, folded it all up. And his partner came home and said, did you wash all of that together? And did you hang it all together? Seeing that it had already been like washed and folded. And he said, well, what would be the outcome if I said, yes, I did wash it all together. And she said, well, I'd be really upset because, you know, my rules for, you know, washing things. And he said, okay, I washed them separately then. And just has to say whatever's necessary for a quiet life. And sometimes you just have to do whatever's necessary for a quiet life. For me... We've talked about lying and how I don't like lying, if possible. And it, it kind of eats away at me. Like the, the, an example of this that I've got is um, when I started a podcast no, no long ago called The Pie Podcast. Now, I asked permission from the Raspberry Pi Foundation whether we could call it the Raspberry Pi Podcast. And they said no. And so I called it The Pie Podcast because you can't trademark pie because that's just a number thing, right? And so we called it the Pi Podcast, and then we got quite friendly with them and got invited up there to Pi Towers in Cambridge. And I remember being introduced to people as, oh, these guys do the Raspberry Pi Podcast. And I thought, bloody hell, we could have just called it the Raspberry Pi Podcast <laughs> and it would have been fine. But because I have this instinct to get permission first, because I just don't want the hassle down the line. Yeah, I think it's it's tricky. I mean, there's two ends of the scale there. There's hurting an individual's feelings of, you know, not following the rules that they've set out in their mind and breaching a trademark agreement uh, at the other end of the scale, which has potential legal ramifications for you. Hmm. I think I think you probably did the right thing, um, but some more adventurous, more gung-ho people might, might have just said, screw it, and created the podcast and used the brand name. How many pairs of shoes do you own? Six. I have six pairs of shoes. Actually, what do you what do you qualify as shoes? <laughs> if it covers my foot, does it count as shoes? Like are slippers shoes? No. Okay. Let's call it outdoor footwear. As shoes are outdoor footwear. Okay. Well, if I wear them outdoors, then I'm still gonna go with six. I have uh a pair of moccasins that I wear <laughs> to take the trash out. I don't know why that's funny, but it is. They're very comfortable. <laughs> of course they are. They're like fleece inside. That does sound comfortable, I must say. Yeah, it's awesome. What are the other types of footwear that you have that are not moccasins? I have a white pair of tennis. I have a black pair of tennis. I got a pair of athletic shoes. Uh, I have a pair of snow boots. And I have a pair of thong sandals as you would call them but we call them chunkless we definitely don't call them thong sandals we call them flip-flops well whatever you want to call them 
And I think there's a phrase that I learned this uh, last year, which is sliders. What? No, you eat sliders. Yeah, I know. They're um, the things you wear by the pool, which have a bridge that goes over the bridge of your foot and all of your toes are exposed at the end. And there's no heel. Those apparently are called sliders. Oh, now those are still chanclas. Cool what? Chanclas. You throw them at people. Ah! Oh, those. Yes. Your mom doesn't want you to do some shit. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Joe? How many pairs of shoes do you own? One, two, three, four or five, let's say. I've got my uh, trainers that have got paint on them that I wear most of the time. Uh, then I've got my good trainers, which if we were going to the pub or whatever, I'd wear. And then I've got my smart black shoes, which I go to weddings and funerals in. And I've got some kind of heavy duty boots for when it's snowing and whatnot. Oh, shit. I left off a pair of shoes. Oh, yeah. I forgot about a pair of brown leather shoes. You got to have like a pair of nice shoes to go with the suit or something, you know? Dress shoes. Yeah. Well, my mate took the piss out of me because mine looked like school shoes. Apparently. <laughs> Do they have Velcro across the top? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I'm foreseeing Alan has more shoes than we do. I think I might, but that's probably because I'm older. <laughs> um, and so they, uh, I keep them for a while. Uh, I have like two pairs of trainers I alternate between uh, for like day to day when I'm just like going out. Um, I have bra- two pairs of brown dress shoes, two pairs of black shoes, a pair of uh, steel toe cap boots, and... Uh, I think two pairs of flip-flops and that's probably about it. I might have some others, but I think that's about all I wear. Maybe trainers. I think I bought a cheap pair of trainers and the laces broke. So I threw them away. I was so angry that the laces (laughs) broke. Just buy new laces. (laughs) Well, yeah, I could have, but I was really angry. So I threw them away. Um, because they annoy me. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think that's probably about six or seven pairs of shoes. And you don't buy new cars because you hate waste and uh, using resources, and yet you threw a pair of shoes away because the laces broke. It's a slightly longer story than that. (laughs) I I kept them thinking I would do something about this, but it wasn't, it was the lace that broke first, and then one of the rings where you loop the the lace through, that broke, and I couldn't be asked to take them back to the shop or return them or get them swapped or anything. And and they'd been sat there for a while, and I kept thinking, oh, I need to take those back because they're like subpar quality and get them changed or get a refund or something. And I never got around to it. And it like two years passed. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I haven't worn those things for two years. The laces are broken on them. And then I threw them away. So it wasn't, you know, quite as bad, but it, um, arguably it is still bad. Yes. I forgot that I do actually have one other pair of skate shoes. What are skate shoes? Um, you know, like uh, uh, Vans and uh, DCs. I think these are DCs. Like shoes that you would wear to skateboard in. Converse, right. Not like Converse All-Stars. Like they're big, chunky affairs. I think I have seen you wear those, yes. But they kind of rub on my feet, and so that's why I don't really wear them much. But I've got a story about... Uh, returning shoes so my wife bought some waterproof shoes went walking in them in the kind of long grass and came back with wet socks Uh, and this is from let's just say a a retailer that sells sports equipment in the uk who uh, is not known for its uh, good labor 
practices JD Sports. Sports Direct. I, I'm not going to say who it is. Okay, so it's Sports Direct. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Feel free to edit that out, and I'll just keep saying Sports Direct. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not saying who it is. It could be. It could be any okay. shop. Uh, oh, so you've just telegrammed me here. It's Sports Direct. Okay, <laughs> that is a lie, listener. That is a lie. Anyway, so we took them back, and they said, um, uh, "Now we we don't believe you." And I was like, "What? They're waterproof shoes." She wore them. She got wet socks. Give us our money back. Here's the receipt. I'm like, no, no. I said, "Right, go and get a bucket and fill it with water, and we'll stick them in, and you can feel that the water." goes into these supposedly waterproof shoes. He's like, mm, all right then. And so he did. And then about 20 minutes later... Wait, what? He went and got a bucket? That's over and above my expectations of a retail store employee in the UK. Yes. Well, he did because I was not going to leave until I got my money back. And so he was hoping to get one over on me because he thought I was taking the piss and that there was nothing wrong with them. But then after about 20 minutes of being in the bucket, he puts his hand in and goes, oh yeah, there is water coming in. Better give you money back then. Wow. If you were to learn a foreign language, which one would it be and why? And this can be any language from any time in human history. It seems like it would probably be most effective to learn Latin, because if you understood Latin, you'd get the gist of a lot of other languages. Even just having the limited knowledge that I have of Spanish, because my Spanish isn't very good. Like, I can still kind of catch what people say in Italian sometimes. So it seems like, uh, you know, if you could choose any language that, that would probably be the most useful or the, the mo like open the door to learning the most other languages. I've often thought about, you know, properly learning one of the European languages. And then I've realized it's because of our imperial past, there's not a lot of point because everyone speaks English anyway. So I, I, I practically speaking don't need to. Uh, and I've had experience of that. I turned up in Germany, uh, to a German company on a training course and I walked in the door and the lecturer was talking in German with everyone in the room. There were like 20 people in the room and they were all talking German. And I opened the door and said, good morning. And the lecturer's face just dropped as he saw me. He was like, Oh. Hello. And that was it. From that point onwards, everyone switched to English. And obviously that was more an inconvenience for them, but I was very grateful because I didn't know German. Um, but, but that's a you know, side benefit of our English being the like lingua franca, shall we say, of, uh, of Europe. I think I would choose, uh, some Chinese dialects, Mandarin or whatever. Um, I think. That would open more doors. I think going forwards, I think we're going to have more interactions with China and Chinese people than we have in the past. And I don't think enough people in the West speak Mandarin or other Chinese dialects. So I think that would probably be useful. Yeah, that would be my answer if I wasn't married to a German. And so clearly German is the one that I would like to be able to speak and I'm trying to learn, and it's very difficult. Uh, I think you have to live there, really, if you're going to learn it properly. And I don't. And my wife is incredibly good at English, correcting my spelling and everything. So there's not as much motivation to learn it, really. But I just wish I could speak it properly and then communicate with that side of the family. Have you tried using one of the 
language apps like Duolingo. Yeah, I tried Rosetta Stone once upon a time and I just didn't have the motivation to do it. I was just, I'm just a terrible person, I suppose. Duolingo is quite good. I've got, I've got the app and on a few occasions I've started learning a couple of languages with it. It's actually really nicely done. And at the beginning of the new year, I opened it at, on, at the beginning of January and I've had this thing installed for a year or more, but not opened it. And I opened it at the beginning of January and that triggered it to start sending me notifications throughout January saying, Hey, you could spend 10 minutes now learning a bit of Chinese because it knew what language I wanted to learn. And then it reminded me a week later, Hey, now would be a really good time for you to sit down and learn a bit more Chinese, spend 10 minutes or something like that. And it did this three or four times. And then at the end of January, it said, Hey, this clearly isn't working. We're not going to notify you anymore. Well, at least they get it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I like Duolingo a lot. I feel like it's really helped expand my Spanish vocabulary. And um, I, I would definitely recommend it to anybody who is trying to learn another language. It seems like it's the best option right now. What innovation should have changed the world but didn't? Soda stream. <laughs> the soda stream. So you should make your own fizzy pop at home. Yeah. It should have made uh, buying fizzy drinks in supermarkets obsolete. It should be, you should just, uh, everyone should get a delivery of syrup and you've already got a tap with water and maybe there should be mainline CO2 going into people's houses by now, but it never ha- it never took off. It should have done. And then we wouldn't be buying cans of Coke and have all that aluminium wasted on cans of drink. We could all just reuse one glass bottle with a on the button on the top of the uh, soda stream and have our fizzy drinks of whatever taste we desire. Yeah, it would have changed the world because we wouldn't have uh, all that plastic mountain or whatever in the sea from all the bottles. Yeah, totally. Wow. So, Alan, do you uh, have like a, a local brewery or anything that you can go and... Dude, I live in the UK. There are tons of breweries. Okay. Well, you know, <laughs> there's tons of pubs, but, you know, brewery and pubs, different thing, right? Like, Yeah, sure. But do you have a place where you can go and fill up like a giant canteen of beer and bring it home? That's really not a thing that we do here. Do you think that you could go to one of those breweries and organize a piss up? <laughs> No, it's just not. A, it, it, you go to the pub in order to have drinks. But I, I was chatting to a colleague of mine who has a thing in the boot of her car. And when they they go out, they they might have a beer and then ask the guy behind the bar to fill it up. And then they take it home. And this is an alien concept to me. That's not a thing we do in the UK at all. No. Yeah, there's a um, a few places in town where you can go and for like the price of a single pint, they'll give you like a liter and a half of beer or something and you can just take it to go. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like crazy affordable. <laughs> That's about three pints. Well, not quite three pints for the Americans that aren't uh, hip like you, Dan. It's funny how you're all metric with your degrees and liters. I try. <laughs> Doing my part. <laughs> That's my innovation. The fucking metric system. <laughs> Come on, America. (laughs) Get with it. Well, the metric system has changed the world apart from America. We are the world. China might disagree with that. Yes, they might well do. So my innovation that should have changed the world is actually a serious one, unlike your silly one. And that is the internet and telecommunications generally. I think that by now, nobody should travel to work. I think that it should be an uncommon thing where you occasionally travel to do 
sprints and, and whatnot, but most people should work at home. And thanks to the technology that we have, it is possible now. It would be possible for a lot of people, okay, not everyone. If you go around collecting recycling, you can't do that from home, obviously. But most office jobs could be done from home, but they're not. Well, no. I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think you can. I think, statistically, I think a significant number of jobs can't be done remotely. Yeah, okay. Office workers who are mostly typing email and creating presentations or developers who are writing code, a significant chunk of their work can be done away from home. And that's like proved that by the fact that I've worked remotely for uh, nearly 10 years. But there's so many jobs out there like cleaner nurse doctor retail store uh, you know there, there's just a myriad jobs that cannot be done remotely just flat out can't oh yeah of course but i i think that we should be in a situation where it is relatively uncommon to travel to work i feel like even doing software development that given the option that I think it would still be more productive to have an actual office that like the majority of the time we go to the office to work and have working remotely be available and an option. But there's just something about working in person that's way more productive. And I don't know what it is, but it just seems like it's so much easier to get things done. And when you're working remotely, like even jumping on a call, sometimes there's just a bunch of back and forth that doesn't happen when you're face to face with somebody. I think that's the case with some some of the time. I don't I think perhaps yes, I mean I agree with you because you know I go to a sprint every 3 months and uh yesterday I was in the London office working with my colleagues and we got loads done on that one day um because you can condense a whole load of tasks which require interaction with other people but there's a ton of jobs where and a ton of development work where it's a very solitary task. You know, you've got your task to do. You need to implement a feature, fix a bug, do a security update, whatever it might be. And if you went to an office, a significant chunk of your day, you'd be sat at your desk on your own, staring at your screen typing. Yeah. Similarly with me, when I had to do editing at the Truth to Broadcasting Sprint that we had, um, you know, it's better to be in person to do the recording, but editing is a solitary activity and so they'd all go off and do exciting things after recording linux unplugged and i'm just sat in the tiny office doing my editing um and so i could have been at home for that um but i think the the answer to why it hasn't taken off working at home is because people are useless and people are useless at communicating generally speaking there are some people who are very good at it and will get on with the tasks that they need to do but then other people are lazy and will just not um, deliver properly if they don't have someone watching them. And I think that is the difference between people who can successfully work remotely, like you, Alan, and people who try it and just end up getting sacked because they don't deliver on what they're supposed to do. Because if you're in an office, you feel like you're being watched, whereas at home you just goof off and just, you know, just watch YouTube and TV or whatever. Yeah, I think there's certainly some people who, for whom working at home is not suitable. I don't think they'd necessarily, you know, slack off and then get sacked. I think what's worse is that they aren't a functioning member of the team and they don't deliver on, you know, what their, ex what the expectations of their role is. And so what's worse is that the company doesn't succeed because of 
them slacking off. Uh, and I've certainly seen that. I've certainly seen people who, you know, are giving tasks to do and you check in with them a week later and nothing has moved. And it's like, what the hell have you been doing for a week? Like, but having them nearby, you know, in the office, maybe there are some people who do need a bit of babysitting to make sure they're not sitting watching YouTube all day or staring out the window and doing nothing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think that it's probably there are more people like that who need to be babysat, if that's a word, than the people who can be genuinely productive on their own, because it takes a lot of motivation to do that. I think for me, I know that personally working from home, that it's easier to become distracted or get off task because there's so many other things that are available to you. And something that um, I, I constantly hear from people who work from home is one of the most effective things that you need to do is set up a designated working area in your house and use that only for work because it it's hard to like make that mental break between I'm at home and I'm relaxing and I'm at work and I'm working and if it's in the same physical space that it can be difficult and I don't know if if it necessarily means that someone needs to be babied or I feel like that's all a little bit derogatory, but it's difficult mentally to be in the same headspace as when you are physically putting on a different set of clothes and stepping outside of your home and going to a different location. Like there's a whole mental dance that happens that that converts you into like a completely different person almost. Or you go and get in the car and drive to a coffee shop and buy yourself a coffee and then drive home and you are now at work. And so you've done the commute, you've got and got your coffee and you've, I, I realize the mental space is not quite the same, but I, I agree with you. You do need a, a space. I have a room in the house, which is where I work. And I go in that room and I shut the door. And while I'm in that room and I'm, the door is shut, I'm working. But equally, sometimes on the weekend, I'm in that room and so it's not really a, a 100% workspace because I might sit and play games in there as well because it happens that the computers are in there. Um, so it is a difficult thing to manage, and I appreciate that some people don't manage it. Yeah, I think everybody that's successful at working from home has their thing that they do to make those separations. And it's it's like a whole other skill set and kind of mental overhead just to maintain like the motivation and productivity by yourself in your like relaxing environment. So I think that that's a big part of it too, is that it is extra work almost to work from home. The best part, of course, of working from home is I've got ready access to my soda stream so I can have fizzy <laughs> drinks at any time. Mm-hmm.